Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. We at Veritas are working to bring uplifting conversation and faithful Catholic teaching to everyone who can hear us. We're listener supported and you can help by going to www.veritascatholic.com. And Bishop Frank told us a while back that if he wasn't a priest, his love for astronomy might have led him to a career writing science fiction. So today, he's going to tell us about what attracts him to astronomy in our first segment. And then in the second segment, we'll talk about the relationship between faith and reason. First, thank you to our weekly sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. Please visit the museum online at kofcmuseum.org check out its weekly webinars. These programs are free, enjoyable, and educational. Again, it's kofcmuseum.org. All right, hey y'all, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, and I'm so happy to introduce His Excellency Bishop Frank Caggiano. Hey, you know, Steve, I always enjoy our time together, but today's topic is really exciting to me. Yeah. I- We're gonna talk about astronomy, no? That's right. I'm excited too. I am way out over my skis on this one. I, I feel maybe a little bit like that every week anyway, but uh, this week especially, I, I don't know anything about astronomy. So, um, but we, well, we I don't dis- know much either, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the truth be told. <laughs> well, well, in our very first episode that we've done of Let Me Be Frank, mm-hmm. you said mm-hmm. that you loved astronomy since you were a boy. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember you said that uh, if you could... If you weren't a priest, you probably would find yourself as a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think we can have some fun today and you can, you can teach us mm-hmm. uh, about this science of astronomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can we, uh-huh, go ahead. No, no, no. It's just, yeah, it's, for me personally, it, um, uh, 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 science fiction and that sort of science fantasy and the sciences of astronomy and physics and all the rest, engage the imagination. Yes. And that's why I find it so refreshing and so fascinating, Because you're forced to imagine and conceive of things that stretch your mind until it hurts. But there's a great theological and personal lesson to be learned from that. And I think that's why there's tremendous value what we're going to talk about today because it's not for the facts we're going to discuss because quite frankly i know as little as probably you do but the little i have learned is is i think an entree an invitation for people to really kind of question a lot of the premises by which we live our ordinary life that's really the why i think this is so important yeah anyway when you were a little boy didn't you imagine didn't you imagine flying to the moon or being an astronaut i you know Star Wars came out when I was three or four years old, and I, rem- I still remember going to the theaters to see it. Um, and yeah, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker when I was younger, and when I got a little bit older, still a child, I wanted to be Han Solo, so. Oh, exactly, there you go. And it was the special <laughs> effects that blew me away growing up. So, because I grew up in the Star Trek era. Okay. Which was prehistoric times for you, but I mean, in the Star <laughs> Trek era, on television, Captain Kirk and Spock and Intelligent Life and all of these other, all right, certainly it's way out there, but it engaged the imagination. Like when you look up into the sky, even growing up in Brooklyn, even with the, uh, with the light pollution that occurs at night, you could still see hundreds, thousands of stars and you imagine to yourself, well, 
what is out there. Yeah. So there's that natural human curiosity, right, that we all have. What's out there? And, and is there anything that we could recognize, anything we could touch and, and be a part of and experience? Yeah. So that has always, and then Star Wars, I think just the special effects when I was, I was much older, obviously, than three years old, but it was, um, it was astonishing as to what they were able to do. It seems so real. Yeah. It was almost like the earliest video games in some sense, right? <laughs> right. Um, it and still holds some up. Of the, yeah, oh, of course it does. Absolutely. And some of the premises under which those, those, those play, those, that screenplay and the text of it and the manual was based on also flows into what I hope we can talk about today. Um, as yeah. I mentioned to you, there's a show that I watch, How the Universe Works. It's eight, eight seasons long. It's on the Science Channel. I discovered it's on demand, so I could watch all 96 episodes anytime I want. <laughs> and there was one in particular that exploded this interest in astronomy. I literally stumbled on it. And then it brought back all the memories of when I was a little boy, but in a totally different context. And part of what fascinated me, I came halfway through the show. I've watched the show in its entirety twice since. And there was this conundrum which was presented. And the Hubble telescope, which has just had its anniversary, I think it's 25th anniversary, that had its ups and downs, has revolutionized astronomy because of its ability to be able to look at light apart from the visible spectrum, because of its ability to avoid all of the other obstacles that Earth's atmosphere, and because of the upgrades it has had um, in, I think, three or four space flights, it can peer deep into the universe. So I stumbled into this show that's something that literally just mesmerized me. And do not ask me for the scientific classifications because I don't remember what they're called. But there is a galaxy that Hubble stumbled upon. It picked a portion of the universe that seemed to be black, empty, and focused its attention long enough that it finally detected a galaxy that's 13.4 billion years old. And the light that is coming to us is 13.4 billion years. So now consider, we're looking back in time. Right? Yeah. So that is 400 million years after the Big Bang. So it's the oldest light we have detected to date. And therefore, they were talking about how it seems very unformed and all the rest. And it kind of verifies a lot of the theories that surround the Big Bang. However... What they stumbled upon a year later, astronomers, that took them by surprise was the fact that the light is 13.4 billion years old, but the galaxy itself is 34 billion light years away. And we talked about this. So now the question is, how do you explain that? And see, and this is the insight that was shared. An astronomer said that space itself does not follow the laws of matter. Hmm. So space can expand faster than the speed of light, even though matter 
cannot expand faster than the speed of light. So what are the implications? Scientifically, there's many. But for us, from a perspective of faith, there is a huge lesson that is being put before humanity. And that is, Steve, we live in a world that has emphasized that which is material as the source of all truth and the fixed point against which you judge everything else about life. That is the source of materialism. And the source of secularism is that I am, I as a human being, and the center point reference to everything that exists, truth, morality, ethics, etc. So go back to the materialism. So now suddenly we stumbled upon the fact that there is this element called dark energy that absolutely nobody knows exactly what it is, that it animates space apart from matter with laws we could not even conceive of. So there is a realm that is non-material, that is real, that we don't quite understand, and doesn't follow the laws that we think everything and everyone needs to follow. Do you see where I'm going? Yes. So from our perspective, we're now suddenly hit over the head with a ton of bricks that says the very premise of materialism is at best incomplete. And quite frankly, as the guiding principle of all that is, is a lie. So just as matter has its own law, so too space has its own law, then why would not the spiritual realm have its own quote-unquote law, reality, logic, structure, organization? See, now suddenly, it doesn't seem as far-fetched as the pure materialists would have held just a few years ago. Right. May I share a second insight from that show that absolutely blew my mind away? So, in the end, we may have spoken about this earlier. Because the space is traveling faster than the speed of light, if there is intelligent life anywhere else apart from Earth, it is a theoretical impossibility ever to encounter it. So this is the of Martians coming and we all hold hands and then there's, you know, it will never happen. The theoretical physicists say will never happen. And it cannot happen because we cannot travel faster than the speed of light theoretically and space is traveling faster. Huh. So everything out there is, is receding away from us faster than we can ever approach it. So what does that mean? Let's take it from the context of faith. At the very heart of secularism, as I said, is on the reference to the universe. Well, you know what? Even as a kid, you stand before all the stars and you look very small. And now you're, re you're entering into theoretical impossibilities. That we can never do this. We can never look beyond the visible boundaries of what the universe is, which is about 30-some-odd billion light years across. There's at least 65 billion more light years we will never see. We can ever, never ever see. And more and more of the universe is receding so that we will never encounter it, never see it. So now suddenly, the premise that we are autonomous and we are self-governing and we are the masters of our destiny and our universe and we can get to know all things and control all things, now suddenly it's been called into question by science itself. No, we can't. No, we're not. 
No, we're not. Copernicus said the earth's not the center of the universe. Well, the truth of the matter is that has a profound spiritual lesson. It challenges how the ordinariness of life is lived. And science itself is doing that. And then you can go deeper. They call, in astronomy, they call the single point of all that exists a singularity. And when the Big Bang occurred, the singularity went through this moment of explosive expansion. That is called inflation. And there are theoretical physicists and astronomers who, who have surmised that in that moment of whatever the Big Bang actually was, that the universe expanded, inflated to much of its present size. So now we went from a single point to 94 billion light years across. Let's think about that for a second. All right, it makes my head hurt even to conceive of it. So astronomers struggle with the causality. What moved the singularity to expansion? Right. And is it intentional? And if it is, is there a design? So now we speak of the deistic idea that there is a, an architect of supreme reality or being that's the architect of creation. Uh, St. Thomas speaks of the unmoved mover, right? In part of his, his theories of the, of the proof of the presence of God. Yes. But from our perspective, in faith, it makes perfect sense that there is a reality far greater than singularity. That reality is that which guides all that has happened and will happen to all that we can see and not see. Matter, space, and everything else we have not even, even conceived of encountering, which we in faith would say among that is the spiritual world spiritual reality. For us, it makes perfect sense. So the astronomers struggle with language. They speak of creation, but you can't have creation without a creator. They speak of infinity. And one astronomer in that same show said, infinity makes my head hurt. <laughs> he said, because I'm not exactly sure how to explain it. Of course not, because right. you can't depart from faith. That completes the picture, right? Yes. So uh, I find astronomy fascinating because the more I delve into it, the more in many ways brings limit concepts to discussion. So if the universe is truly infinite, what undergirds something which is truly infinite that has space and matter and we would say a spiritual realm dimension to it? What undergirds all that? And it seems to have an order well, who intended that? I mean, science can't answer that question. In faith, we can. Yeah. And then you can go deeper. You want to keep going deeper? Yes. We could drown here. Let's keep going deeper. <laughs> In Revelation, we speak of God revealing who he is. We've talked about this as a community of love, as self-gift. And we have also spoken in an earlier podcast about the grammar of human life is self-gift. I wonder to myself, 
if there is not yet a theology to be articulated that speaks to the very architecture of all creation, the universe, or the multiverse, if there is more than one universe, if that is not the grammar of everything that exists, matter, space, and even that which we have not yet discovered, is that not all the grammar of it, self-gift, to, to be given away? That's not the architecture beyond this expansion. It is a giving away to someone who we understand through Christ to be the Father, the source and origin of all that is, matter, space, our spiritual, the spiritual reality that undergirds it all. It is a fascinating, it's just to me, it's fascinating. And the reason why in part it's fascinating is because we can engage young people and young adults who believe the scientific method is the only source of truth to begin to make their heart, their, their minds hurt so they could become to understand that truth is multivalent and it is not just that which is based in the material world. Does that make sense? It does. It's, uh, you know, I had, um, I didn't know what to expect with today's topic, but now I'm going to have to go back and sit and reflect for a while on all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to think about and I can see why, you know, you, you loved astronomy all your life. You, you, you sit and you think about, uh, it starts with a little boy or a little girl gazing up at the sky and the sky seems endless and it seems like there's, you know, a hundred million stars up there and it gets your imagination going and started. And then as you get bigger and you learn more about science and as you're teaching us today, you know, as much as we learn about science and the universe, we keep discovering with every discovery, we keep discovering that there's more out there that we don't know. Well, see, that is, that is the absolute necessary stance of cognitive and personal humility, which is the antidote to secularism and materialism. Astronomy puts us back into our proper place. Right. We think we're hot stuff. Well, we are little hot stuff into a much larger hot stuff, which is called the larger universe. Consider for a moment, there are a trillion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There are trillions of galaxies, as best we can even surmise, once you go beyond the visible universe. Even at that, astronomers and, and physicists think there could be possibly, possibly, 10,000 planets that exist that are in that zone which is so narrow that could allow biological life as we understand it, presuming that life other than a carbon-based life could, is even as possible. And we will never know if it exists because we can't get there fast enough. Right. So what does it tell us about us? The great masters of the, of the universe. What masters of the universe? We can't balance our checkbooks. <laughs> so there is a surrender see when I look back on growing up what captivated me about astronomy was its beauty its wonder 
It took me out of the ordinary and put me into the realm of the extraordinary. And I think that we've spoken about the way of the beautiful as one of the three transcendentals. I think astronomy is a place where this question of science and faith, as well as beauty, meet so that we could engage young people in some real, healthy, intellectual, and affective debate. And some of the images that Hubble has produced are just breathtaking. And we've all seen them. They're breathtaking. Nebula Mm -hmm. that are a million light years across. And when you look at gravitation and how gravity holds it, so that's another underpinning that one cannot see completely, nor can one fully and completely understand in space. So there is almost like a framework to space that holds everything in its place. So so there is an order to it. And that too, is that haphazard or is that intentional? It seemed to me the only logical conclusion is that it is, even evolutionary is intentional. And even the theory of evolution, which many Christians who are fundamentalists have tremendous uh, difficulty with because they believe it contradicts the teachings of the Bible. In fact, one can hold the truths of Genesis clearly that there is an intentional creator that created all things, including you and me in his image and likeness. And also understand that creation is not just a fact, but an ongoing reality that the creator still creates in the birth of stars and galaxies and planets and black holes and supernovae and runaway stars and all the other um, aspects of the universe that we've come to understand with such tremendous humility. Creation is not a finite thing. The act of creating is an ongoing reality. And so evolution can be very much part of God's intended creating will. Yeah, I think it was... uh... I could be wrong, but I think it was John Henry, Henry Newman who said that uh, theology is the queen of the sciences. Yes, of course, in the Middle Ages, it certainly was. Yeah, so it, it makes sense. The more we learn about biology and we go smaller and smaller and smaller and see the complexity, and then we go mm-hmm. and look at astronomy and we go bigger and bigger and bigger and we see the vastness and the, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, what ties that together, you're saying... It's theology, it's our creator. Yeah, it's actually what holds it all together that gives it both meaning, purpose, and mission is, is God in the end. There is no other explanation to move a singularity from a passive to an active state that literally has an explosion beyond our wildest comprehensions and to hold that in an organized fashion. There isn't. There is no concept to understand infinity in any meaningful way apart from a discussion of of God. For even in the end, if one were to say that there is no spiritual world, but that matter itself is infinite, I'm not sure theoretical physics actually holds that to be even a theoretical possibility anymore, since one would argue that energy perhaps is the enduring reality, not matter. But even if one were to give that away, then what you're really saying is that you you consider matter to be God. 
but it's not intentional matter. So in my mind, you have a contradiction in terms. Right. So do you see what I mean? Astronomy just pushes you to the limit, to limit concepts. And in my mind, it is not something that faith needs to be afraid of. I think it's very much in those limit concepts brings the questions of faith forward by using the scientific method itself. So we don't intrude into it. It leads to the questions of faith. Yeah. If, uh, if somebody wants to learn more about astronomy, Excellency, do you have any, any books or sh- you recommend, it sounds like, of course, how the universe works on the science Oh, without channel. a doubt. I would start there. Okay. I would start there. And then what I would suggest is they feature probably 10 or 11 astronomers. And all of them have writings. So, you know, there are some books out there, right? There's a tremendous amount of work being done between the relationship of faith and reason too, but the use of science in general. Um, But quite frankly, I would recommend for our readers, particularly in a leisurely time like summer, is just throw yourself into a few of those episodes and get a sense. And if you feel this sense of imagination, you know, this, this is intriguing, then I would pick one of the astronomers and Google him or her and see what articles they've written. And then from there, work your way to a textbook to be able to see. What I bought, it's funny, my niece gave me this gift a few years ago and it's one of my treasured books. It's National Geographic published a book on the Hubble telescope. Hmm. And I don't have it with me here, but next we come together, I could get you the exact title. And it shows images of that Hubble has produced over the years with mm. some background. And you see, I'm very visual. Right. And astronomy is all about vision. Yeah. Um, those are the sort of things I would begin before you get into more of a theoretical kind of what astronomy is and all these. Because some of them may be very interested. I'm more interested from the faith angle now than I am from the actual science itself. Yeah. It starts with the visual, though, like you're saying, and sparking the imagination. Right. Right, right, right. Uh-huh. See, when I was a kid, I always imagined what were those little people living on those stars? <laughs> now that I'm older, I look upon the heavens and I understand what we mean when we say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and of earth, of all things visible and invisible. Now I understand what that means. I see the hand of God there. This is my entree in imagination to sense the presence of God in a, an exciting way. And awesome. then to think that God came to us and took a human life is when we become hot stuff. Then we become hot stuff. Not because of us, but because of, of what God did for us. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellency, let's let's take a break and uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, the relationship between faith and reason, science and the church when we come back. Great. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So. Let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network.
Okay, welcome back. This is Let Me Be Frank featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. So Excellency, we were talking about astronomy in the first segment. Let's take our conversation and now broaden it out. And let's talk about mm -hmm. the relationship between the church and science. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who um, disagree with the church will say that the two have been in conflict over the past 2,000 years, but that's really not the case, has it? No, not at all. No, the only conflict that exists is the attempt for one of the elements, in this sense, this what I will call um, a misunderstanding of the proper use of human reason, um, to claim its domain over all truth, which has impoverished human life. See, you made note of this before, there are some renowned individuals throughout history who, working for the church, made tremendous scientific discoveries. It was the church that founded most of the universities of Europe in the Middle Ages. Yes. It is the church from its earliest times that saw education to be such an important piece of its mission, even into our own day. And theology is the mother of all sciences, is the queen of sciences, but all the sciences eventually flowed out of theology, not because they are enemies, but because they are looking at a diamond from different perspectives. So, let's be clear, there is no opposition between faith and reason. They are complementary. How can we hold that? Well, let's go deep. Number one. It is the same God who gave us the human faculty of reason is the same God who gives us the ability to be a hearer of revelation. That God which created nature also gives us grace and grace builds on nature. So that which we can reason to, that which we can discover, that which we in our own abilities can comprehend reveal a portion of that which God has, has in some way, shape, or form offered to us. And faith allows us to receive that which reason could not on its own ever reason to. We talked about that at Trinity yes. Sunday. To reason that there is a God, is given our astronomy discussion, is more than plausible. But who God is needs to be revealed. So if you imagine creating my favorite cookie, which is the, that, the seven layer cookie, right? So you're adding one layer upon the other to get the one cookie. Otherwise, what you have is not totally satisfying, right? So in the end, what you have is the natural human tendency to take something which is meant to be held together, somewhat in creative tension, and to take one and emphasize it to the ultimate extreme. So science, reason, let's say reason, most especially as it is manifested in science, is taken to its extreme when people say the scientific method is the only source of truth. And those who emphasize faith become, make it almost magical to the extreme. This fideism that is not rooted in that which we know by reason to be something that has to be dealt with. Okay. 
So perfect example, in the COVID-19, there are some voices that say this is all a hoax. But if in fact there is evidence that this is in fact a real virus, that people are really dying, then to think that God is going to save us simply because we believe in him and not use our right reason is incomplete. You see what I mean? So they're held together because the source of both is the same God. But it raises another question. And that is, let me ask it this way to our listeners. Who do you love? And if you picture the person that you love and can say, I do love that person. You, for example, picture your wife or your children. How do you prove that? In fact, do you need to prove it? But how do you prove it? And certainly, how do you prove it with the scientific method? And the answer to that is you can't. Mm -hmm. Is it true? Yeah. Now suddenly we have a truth that's not material. You see, the tension, the, I'm going to say the, not so much tension is not the proper word, the creative relationship that exists between reason and faith. All right, That faith can claim something that reason may struggle with, but then re reason may make a claim that faith needs to deal with. But the truth is, they are all working their way towards the fullness of the truth, who is God, right? But that fullness of the truth is what modern society does not understand. So when I make a claim that I love someone, I believe it to be true, and I know it's true. I don't just believe it. I know I, I, know I loved my mother. Okay. And I know it, and I knew it in a way that was beyond cognition. I actually knew it in a way beyond the affective. It was more than the feelings I had as my for my mother, but it was a spiritual reality. I knew it. Just as much as when someone says, I love the Lord Jesus, it's more than just a cognitive and affective relationship. Because there's a truth that only the spiritual dimension can offer us. Right. But if you live in a world that takes reason and science to an extreme and therefore define truth only in terms of what I can see or prove or touch or measure, then you're impoverishing your own reality, your own life. And then you live schizophrenically. Hmm. Because you're still going to fall in love with people. You're still going to try to give your life away, please God. You're still going to do that. In which case, that is also true. So the relationship between faith and reason exists, not simply because the one created both, but the fullness of truth demands both. And that truth is not in opposition. So for example, I believe it was John Henry Newman who said, if you imagine a circle and you imagine a point on the circle, could be astronomy or psychology or theology or arithmetic or geometry, whatever else it may be, all the sciences, all the arts, it's painting, it's literature, anywhere on that, as you move from that point to the center point, all of them will lead to God. He's the author of it all. And therefore the scientific question 
The scientific method begins with a question. In the modern discourse about faith, we should become comfortable with questions. That's precisely unanswered questions that are leading people, as we spoke about, to disaffiliate. So reason can help faith to reach its full maturity, and faith helps reason because it tames it and helps it to understand that the truth it articulates is not the fullness of truth. So there is a symbiotic relationship between the two. Yes. And that also leads to my last point, which is the absolute, unequivocal necessity of holding the natural law and the divine law hand in hand. Because there's a grammar to existence that reason and science can understand. And then there's a grammar to existence that comes to us graciously from God. That we accept and believe. And you put them together, you have the fullness of life. And when we want to redesign the natural law, we get into big trouble. Mm. No different that you want to ignore the divine law, you get into big trouble. Right. Yeah. You, you can't break that relationship between science, no, faith no. and reason. Well, because if you look at yourself or myself, we are then, we're rational in the image and likeness of God. We are spiritual in the image and likeness of God. We are affective in the image and likeness of God. So we hold it all together in who we are. So why would we not hold it all together in how we act? Right. And so go back to astronomy. Why I think astronomy is so fascinating is because it naturally forces the scientific method to surrender in humility and say, there are limits that I have no explanation for. And in faith, there is a surrender to the divine law and the revelation of Jesus Christ, which necessity of necessity asks of us the proper use of reason. You know, in the early church, the great controversies of the early church were philosophical. It was the recognition that the biblical language needed a philosophical framework to dialogue with reason and with the modern world as it was evolving. And all of the heresies, in part, were an attempt to apply a philosophical framework to biblical truth. And people fell off the ranch, right? They fell right. off the edges. Right. But if you look at Arius, for example, faithful priest, Arius, the famous formula of Arius in the, in the fourth century, in the 300s, was that Christ was the highest of all creation. Yes. But not equal to God. Because right. philosophically, that makes more sense than to say that somehow this one human life was co-equal to God and therefore who was in heaven. I mean, but yeah. that's reason, not dialoguing with Revelation, because Revelation said otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And he stuck to that even after he got punched by St. Nicholas at the Council of Nicaea. 
Correct. Well, that was my type of council. <laughs> Throwing chairs at each other, the emperor calling in soldiers to, to put the bishops back into order. Those were the days. <laughs> we become much more civil now. But, yes. But, but so that dial, that, that uh, I call it attention. It, it, it's a creative relationship between the two. They complement each other, right? And, and therefore, they, they fill in the picture. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, Benedict XVI said that uh, science helps us understand God's plan for the universe while faith keeps scientific progress faithful to that plan. Right. Or faithful to the fact that there is no other way to explain that which it sees except to have a God who we believe graciously reveals himself. Because, what, because even logically, if God were to have created all things and receded into the background, like deism says, and basically he's the master clock worker. Well, I mean, the point of the matter is, what was the point? <laughs> I mean, what's the point? Right. Unless the nature of God is to be self-sufficient and, self and, and therefore detached, in which case the act of creation was just random. But on the other hand, in Christian revelation, all that exists was created so that God could empty himself into it. Yeah. Then, there's a, then, then, you, then to, to the relationship between us and God is so clear, and why we exist is clear, and, and what we do when we worship, we return back what we're given, and go back to the grammar of self-gift that animates all things. Yeah. And the church has always been obviously a champion for the faith and it has really been a champion for science and reason as well. And that's demonstrated in the fact that, as you said, Excellency, so many of the leading scientists in world history were Catholic. Sure, of course. And, and many of them devout. Yeah. Did anyone uh, uh, in particular kind of jump out at you? Um, well, um I think, well, I think the one that had probably the most seminal effect in the relationship between faith and reason was Copernicus. Hmm. You know, and I've used that image of the Copernican revolution in spiritual terms. That in a moment of conversion, Copernicus, of course, spoke that the earth was not the center of the universe. And that dislodged people, Right. Because if you read Genesis, you know, we're the height of all creation, in which case, what do you mean we're not centered in the universe? Right. So that was the first salvo of humility that yeah. should guide the scientific method. Because the scientific method is not meant to be scientism, right? right? Or the taking of science as the only path, right? Right. But Copernicus also gives us a, a roadmap for spiritual conversion. But is it not the case when you look to the primordial sin that it was pride? It was the desire to be like God. So if we are restless until we rest with thee, O God, St. Augustine, that restlessness is there, that whole is that which draws us to God. No different, in a sense, by analogy, that in the astronomical world, there are literally black holes that are drawing all matter into them. 
and are literally with a gravitational pull so deep and so profound that light cannot even escape. And at center of the Milky Way is a huge black hole. So everything around it is, 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 has its ultimate significance in relation to that, literally a hole. For us, on the spiritual world, it's the same thing. The hole that exists in us is our entree to God. And pride puts us in the hole or something else in the hole. And we've been doing that since Adam and Eve. Yeah. So Copernicus says, no, you're not the center. So I speak of the spiritual, the Copernican revolution of the spirit, that you gotta knock yourself out of the center. So whether you are a scientist or whether you are a person of faith or whether you are both, in the end, it is that hole that spiritual hole that brings us back to God. Yeah. And Copernicus was the first to say to, 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 to society and to humanity, you know that idea that we're at the center of it all? Think again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And that will come as shock, Steve. There are people going to listen to this podcast and say, this guy's crazy. <laughs> well, where did he come from? <laughs> I what think I'm not the center. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. No, we're not. <laughs> God is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, there were, uh, Copernicus is clearly one of the pivotal figures. I, I love even the fact that there's a Catholic priest named uh, Georges Lemaitre, who, he was a priest, and he was the one who came up with the Big, ba Big Bang Theory. Uh, so, one of the earliest astronomers. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So in his mind, again, it's going, if, there, if the singularity was moved to explosion, to expansion, to inflation, as they call it astronomically, then who held the singularity in place? And to what purpose did it explode? Yeah. Right. It, to, to me, it, it's right. That does not surprise me in the least. It will come, I think though, Steve, maybe I'm wrong here, so correct me. To a lot of younger people, some of this may come as a surprise. This whole talk about faith and reason being complementary would come as a surprise. Because the truth is, many young people and young adults, and now growing numbers of older people, see truth solely in terms of the scientific. Yeah because they think it's provable and therefore it is fact but let me ask you this is every fact an untraded truth or are facts elements towards understanding the truth right yes mm -hmm. yeah it's it's the uh the rise as you put it of scientism it's making science the religion today it, it's the question of meaning meaning in the end so one plus one is two that's a fact what meaning does that have looking your wife in the eye and telling her i love you is a truth what meaning does it have and i would like to think that meaning is rooted in part in part by the extent to which you 
commit to and engage yourself in that fact. So I'm not going to offer myself to one plus one is two. I use it as a tool. But when I say I love you, I'm engaged, I'm offering my entire life to you in the Christian understanding of love. That has a meaning that far surpasses the fact or the truth that one plus one is two. So truth even of itself is not equally meaningful. And we don't have a discussion about that anymore mm-hmm. in most, most contemporary open societal fora. We just talk about facts and, and even sometimes truth. We don't talk about facts. But meaning is what animates life. So when you look at astronomy, what's the meaning of it all? I'm not sure an astronomer will ever give that an answer to that question. But faith can. Right. Right. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so actually, I'll I'll add one thing. I uh, many years ago, I was having discussions with um, a very smart guy who uh, was also an atheist, and we were friends, and we had many many friendly discussions. And he his biggest argument against the church was that it was anti science. He said, and I told him the things that you said about the, uh, the history of the church. I said, from ancient times, the church was developing hospitals, medicine. They founded the university system in the Middle Ages. Medicine. Yes. They established the scientific method. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. pioneered engineering to build the great cathedrals. Mm-hmm. And the more mm-hmm. we learn about science, the more our faith is strengthened mm-hmm. because, as you said, Excellency, they go together, and God is right. the author of science. Absolutely. And his response? Uh, he, he didn't, he would just say, no, no, no. No. But the other interesting thing is there's an interesting fact when I'm about to say maybe a little controversial, but let's, the the show is, let's be frank. Right. Chances are most atheists reject a God that I would reject because unfortunately they have never really been given the depth and the breadth and the beauty of faith in the God as he truly has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Not to get too coy about it, but many, many individuals never get beyond an infantile understanding of God that was given to us when we were little babies or kids. Mm. They've never gone beyond that. Mm. And therefore they reject it, and rightfully so, because you and I would reject it too. That's not the God we believe in. Right. So it's almost as if they conceptually or cognitively reject an existence of God. But go back to the question of meaning. If meaning, definitive, authentic, enduring, eternal, meaning based in truth comes from God, they will cognitively deny God's existence, but they will live as if there is authentic, definitive, eternal meaning. So they live a contradiction. And they would never admit it. Right. They would even we find it offensive that I said it. But in fact, that's exactly how they live. Yeah. So then the question is, the God that was given to them perhaps is not the real God. Yeah. Right. And that's our failure yeah. as evangelists in the faith. 
Because if there are, if there are growing numbers of people who really do not have an understanding of who God is as he's revealed himself, both in reason, science, and faith, then we as believers have failed to be compelling teachers of the truth. And we have to look at ourselves in this contemporary world to see how are we going to do this in a more effective way. Yes. Yep. It's on us now. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's go to break, Excellency, and come back and answer some questions. Great. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, this week's question, I'm really uh, interested to hear answer because we have a house full of books. And so I want to be sure the Lees have the right foundation included in our collection. Uh-oh. So the, <laughs> the email question came in. It says this. It says, Bishop Frank, I want to start building a library of authentic Christian, authentic Catholic books for my family. After mm-hmm. the Bible and the Catechism, what are the five to ten books that I should begin with? Okay. Well, first of all, I cheated because I have, if you count the sacred scripture and the catechism, I have 11. Okay. So it's actually 11 plus two is 13, but he, yeah, so I'm one over. (laughs) And I must confess, this is a very hard question to answer. I consulted a, a number of people that I deeply respect and they all gave some very fascinating answers. I've come to realize that the list itself is, um, revelatory of your own spiritual and theological journey in life. I also have to admit that I would answer this question probably differently 20 years ago, and if I'm live 20 years from now, I may have answered this slightly differently, right? All right, but these are some of the books I have. First, I believe if you're gonna have the sacred scripture, then you need help to understand and unlock the mystery there that's being given to us in Revelations. I would recommend the Catholic Bible Dictionary, by Scott Hahn, and I would recommend the Jerome Biblical Commentary be in your library. Because I think that background, whether it is archeological, whether it's cultural, um, whether it's historic, breaks open the truth in a way that is far richer and compelling. So those are two texts. I would also recommend a book by, uh, it's edited by Tanner and Alberigo, A-L-B-E-R-I-G-O, called The Decrees of the Ecumenical Councils. And while it's not the most scintillating reading, it is the compendium of magisterial teaching. So when we speak of the magisterium, the highest form of magisterial teaching is are the teachings of the ecumenical councils. And so they give you the full teaching and decrees of all the councils of the church. Hmm. And I think is a fundamental reference text for anyone. When it comes to a theology, either the Summa of St. Thomas or some, some text that provides in perhaps in an easier fashion, that which St. Thomas taught, because I think St. Thomas is in many ways the preeminent theologian in the history of the church and synthesized Christian faith and Aristotelian 
philosophy in a way that no one has and no one will after. So again, not the easiest reading, but I would suggest either the Summa, if I consider that one book, that's cheating, but one book, or a commentary on it. Butler's Lives of the Saints, I would recommend being in the, because yes. those are the profiles of, of living faith, right? Right. Um, among the Saints, I would recommend either the Confessions or the City of God by St. Augustine, either or, because I would take both, but we have a, a constriction here of, of number. St. Francis de Sales, the introduction to the devout life, in my mind, would make the top 10. So too the interior castle by St. Teresa of Avila. Right. Because quite frankly, you could have all the theology in the world you want, but if you're not growing in your spiritual life and, 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 and discovering the depth of that, it, even the devil can quote the scriptures and the catechism. An essay on the development of doctrine by St. John Henry Newman. And the reason I suggest that book is because there is a fundamental tendency always to make the mistake that the true development of doctrine is the innovation of doctrine, which is not the case. It is ever deeply more understanding that which in itself does not change. That I think for any library is important because it is a fundamental flashpoint of modern life. I personally, this is just me personal, just I have one extra, you could take this one off the list, but I would put the Divine Comedy by Dante in the, in the library. Right, okay. Because beauty and literature and the imagery there, again, engages the imagination in a totally new way. And I think he's brilliant, Dante. And the last book is, of course, I'll get a lot of criticism on that. The last <laughs> book is The Code of Canon Law. Because I think in the end, the code is seen as a legalistic manuscript that's dry, but actually it is the, the church's pastoral attempt to help us to live life in a constructive way in faith. Because it's based in Roman law, not in Anglo-Saxon law. So at the heart of canon law is this idea we're striving to live the ideal, and then it gives you how in exceptions to try to strive back to the ideal. But living the ideal is precisely the gospel mandate. So I would recommend that too. And that would be at least, that would be my compendium of books. That's an awesome library right there. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take you a while to get through it because I was cheating because the Sumer is more than one book and right. these other more than one book, but it's all right. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I, I hope that's helpful, and uh, um, we always love to hear from our listeners. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, please send it into questions at veritascatholic.com. Excellency, you are a fantastic teacher. Thank you uh, for this week, for your teaching and your guidance, as always. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to share faith with you and everybody who listens. And uh, I hope you're enjoying your summer, by the way. Uh, it's been... Uh, it's been very good. It feels like the same as the spring was, actually, except warmer. <laughs> I know. I know. The weather has been very nice, though, thank God. Yes. We have to pray for rain, though. That's a whole other story. Another show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to quickly uh, thank our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. The Knights of Columbus Museum has been helping Let Me Be Frank bring solid Catholic content to you each week. So please check out kofcmuseum.org for more good content for your family. 
And Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, as we come to you in wonder and awe of the beauty of creation, mindful of our own poverty and sinfulness, and in the hope that we will grow both in reason and faith, we ask that you bless us. For we make this our prayer in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Steve, take care, my friend. See you next week. Thanks, Excellency. See ya.